Good morning again. Uh, my name's Scott, and it's a joy to serve as one of the pastors here for Redeemer Church. And it's good to see you. Uh, thank you for being here. Uh, in a, a room this size, it can feel a little bit uh, intimidating sometimes. There's a lot of people here, but you matter, and it matters that you're here. And so it's an encouragement just to be with you. Thank you for being here. I want to begin this morning, perhaps in a strange way, I want to begin by inviting you to think about the most shameful thing that you've ever done. Perhaps a particular event comes to mind, or maybe it's not an event, maybe it's a particular pattern of behavior. Perhaps it was in the past, perhaps it's ongoing now. Perhaps it was a time that you thought you were very, very right, but looking back now, you realize you were wrong. Or perhaps it's a time that you knew you were wrong, and you knew what you were about to do was wrong, and you did it anyways. Perhaps it's something that's become public, or perhaps it's something that remains known only to you. But this is the thing, we all have that thing. Whether you're young or whether you're old, we all have moments from our past that grieve us. Does anything come to mind for you? Well, let's just put that right here at the side for the moment and, and allow me to lighten the mood a little bit uh, by averting our attention to something else that happened in the past. May 7th, 2021. You remember where you were on May 7th, 2021? It has been 492 days since May 7th, 2021. Probably you don't remember much about that day. Well, on May 7th of 2021, Redeemer Church began a series in the book of John. Pastor Dave preached that day. Worship was on Friday because the weekend hadn't changed yet. At that time, we were meeting in Ras Al Khaimah. We were Redeemer Church of Ras Al Khaimah because of social distancing restrictions and uh, gathering restrictions here in Dubai. It was closed for gathering, so we were taking the trek up, taking those road trips where it was quite possible that you would have spent twice as long in the car getting to the gathering as you did in the gathering itself. Because it was so uh, brief, we had a song, the sermon, and a song. But since that time, we have experienced 43 sermons in the book of John, taking some breaks here and there, but 43 sermons in the book of John, and so much has changed since that time. So much has changed in uh, our lives, in our church, in the world. There's been wars and rumors of wars in the world. There's been fortunes that have come and go. There's been devastations. But each week, as we've gathered to look at God's word together, what we've been reminded of is that even in the upheavals and the chaos of the world around us or in our own personal lives, God's word remains the same. The reliable testimony of Scripture, unchanged throughout all of these changes in the world, is our guide into eternity. And that's why each week we come together. And that is why at Redeemer, the ministry of this pulpit has been and always will be an expositional ministry. 
We endeavor not to bring you our great ideas that we've come up with because we gathered with a creative team of people who are quite articulate and crafty. We come to expose to you what is in God's word that is plain to see so that you too may see these words of life. This is why we've spent 43 sermons in John. And this is why next week we'll just pick up another book. In Romans, Pastor Dave will begin us, and I hope that you'll all come and enjoy our study of that great epistle. Well, today, as we bring John to a close, we're picking up those verses that were just read for you, John 21, 15 to 25. And we had entitled this sermon, I think, on the the card that you might have gotten of upcoming sermons, or perhaps it's there in the bulletin as well, The Commissioning. Uh, But if I could change the title slightly, what I'd prefer to call this is The Commissioned Life. The Commissioned Life. Because throughout John's gospel, he's been showing his missional ambitions. John is a missional book. It does not simply end with a commissioning thrust, like perhaps Matthew does, where Matthew ends with his great commission. But actually, John's sort of more explicit commissioning passage happened back in a chapter ago, John chapter 20, where the apostle wrote of how the resurrected Christ appeared to his disciples and commissioned them, saying, as the Father sent me, so I'm sending you. And when preaching that section, Hudson Smith did a great job of drawing our attention to the mission that we all have even in this day. But I'm preferring to call our passage today the commissioned life because I think what we're seeing here in John's closing words is he's giving us some helpful reminders and even a structure for how to engage in this commissioned life. Before he closes the book, he wants us to know how the apostles then took some of those first steps following that commissioning from Christ. Further orienting ourselves to the, the passage today, you'll remember last week, if you were here with us, Pastor Chris preached on the verses immediately previous. And we remember that John in this section is really sort of putting on the, the seatbelt light, starting the descent to land this book. And you might have even felt in verse 14 that that would have been an apt conclusion to the book. In verse 14, when it says, This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. The third time, the the thrice repetition, that throughout Scripture and in John is sort of like doing the bold italics and underline. It's saying, This is really important. Look at it. So we might have thought that John had made his point Jesus is alive, he's resurrected. He's appeared to his disciples. And at that point, we could have understood if he skipped straight to his conclusion in verse 24 about the disciple who's bearing witness and the many other things that Jesus did. But just like perhaps in a Marvel movie, if you've ever seen one of those, that the credits begin rolling, but if you just stick in for a minute, you get that one scene that can sort of tie it all together that can sort of let us know what's to come. And that's a bit what John's doing here. He doesn't want to end just with what he said so far. There's something very important he has to say before he finishes. And if you had been an attentive reader of last week's verses, 
your, excite, your imagination would have been excited for this already. Because there was something very important in last week's verses that would have piqued your curiosity and said, oh, what's going to happen now? What that is, is in verse 9. Did you notice in verse 9 when we were looking through those verses that it's describing when Jesus was there on the land and Peter throws himself into the water from the boat. He swims to the shore. The disciples come in after him. And there's an oddly specific way of describing where Jesus is. It doesn't give us all the details. It doesn't say it was the sand or the grass. It doesn't tell us anything about the weather. It tells us one specific thing about the setting where Jesus stood. You can see it there in verse 9. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place. Can you think of anywhere else in John's gospel where there was a charcoal fire? I mean, you could expand the search query a bit lar- uh, larger because there's actually only two places in the entire Bible, uh, or in the entire Greek New Testament, we could say, uh, where this specific word, this charcoal fire is used, verse 9 being one of them, and then back in chapter 18 being the other. It was around a charcoal fire that Peter denied Christ three times. We're told specifically as he stood there on that night while Jesus was under trial and being betrayed, that there was a charcoal fire where Peter stood. And he was asked, aren't you a follower of Jesus Christ? He said, no, no, I'm I'm not. Three times. And so last week as we had read through those verses, perhaps you noticed that and you would have thought, what's going to happen with this charcoal fire thing? John is obviously intentionally drawing our mind back to that occasion where Peter denied Christ. We need to know what's going on. Don't just tease us, John. And he doesn't disappoint. But he tells us of the interaction that Jesus and Peter have following that meeting at the second charcoal fire. So in the minutes that we have now, we're we're going to reflect on these final verses. And we're also even going to look back a little bit several times at the Gospel of John as we conclude this uh, study of it. And we're going to do so under three headings. So if you're a note taker, here you go. We're going to look at it under the headings of loving the singular Lord, submitting to the double call, and living with a triple grief. Loving the singular Lord, submitting to the double call, and living with a triple grief. And as I've just mentioned, the the story in these verses tells of Peter and Christ's interaction in light of Peter's denials. And we're going to see how Jesus resolves that particular point in our third point. In our first two points, we're going to look across these verses to see some of the overarching things of what Jesus is getting across to us through the writer John. So first, the loving, or loving the singular Lord. What do I mean by that? Well, throughout the gospel, and in these final verses to us, John is driving across again and again that there's simply no one else like Jesus. He is singular. He is unique. And we are invited to love him. Jesus asked Peter three times in these verses, again, as they were read, 
three times a simple yet profound question. Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Simon, son of John, do you love me? Simon, son of John, do you love me? Now, some preachers have built an importance around how there are different words here in the Greek being used for love in this exchange, at times using agapao or at times using phileo. But as D.A. Carson puts it and observes, and you can't argue with D.A. Carson, these two words are for love are used so interchangeably throughout the Gospel of John, it's unlikely that John's using them here for anything other than stylistic reasons. He's really just trying to drive home the point, it seems, John is, that rather than excite our curiosity about the Greek uh, linguistic nuances, this thrice repetition is just, again, trying to emphasize and stand out for us the plain emphasis of what Jesus is doing. He's asking a question, do you love me? And so by extension to us, he is asking us that same question, do you, do we love this singular Lord? Jesus' singularity, his uniqueness, is highlighted in, even in Peter's response to the question. He proclaims that Jesus knows everything. He says, Jesus, why are you even asking me this? You know everything. He's attributing to Jesus' divine attributes, his omniscience, that he knows all things. And John carries on this, this theme of praise in those final verses of our passage where he says that the disciple who's bearing witness about these things, who has written about these things, we know that his testimony is true, and now there are many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. So John ends with a sort of unashamed exultation, a sort of superlative. According to John, Jesus is the greatest of all time. And this is interesting, given how much John had said about Jesus. It's one thing to think about that there is so much more that could have been said about Jesus. And that's all the more remarkable when we think about all John had said about Jesus. Let your minds drift back for a moment to some of the things that we've heard from John's gospel as he's introduced us to Jesus. He starts in chapter 1. And he lets the other gospel writers fill in some of the details of Jesus' birth and his family background. And John goes even further back, actually all the way back to eternity past. And he says Jesus was before the beginning of time. He was the Word. He was with God and he was God. Jesus was from eternity past and he had now come to make God known. And then throughout the gospel, John notes repeatedly prophecies being fulfilled, hundreds of year old prophecies from the Old Testament that Jesus is doing and fulfilling the scriptures. He is the promised one from the Old Testament. And then verifying his supernatural origins and power, we read of miracles and miracles upon miracles. Let me just remind you of some of those. We read in chapter 2 about the water turning to wine in Cana, the healing of an official son in Capernaum in chapter 4, and the healing of an invalid at the pool of Bethesda in chapter 5. 
Chapter 6 saw the feeding of the 5,000 by the shore of the Sea of Galilee, upon which Jesus then miraculously walks on those waters. Jesus heals a blind man in chapter 9. He raises Lazarus from the dead in chapter 11. This is no ordinary man. This is Jesus. There's no one like him. Not only did Jesus fulfill prophecy, not only did he work miracles, John gives us no less than 15 titles or names for Jesus throughout the 21 chapters. Let me just remind you of a few of those. Jesus is God. John 1.1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus is called the Word. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, says John 1.14. Jesus is the Lamb of God, says John 1.29. The next day, he saw Jesus coming to him, and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus is the Messiah, John 1.41. It says, He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. In John 4, Jesus is called the Savior of the world. They said to him, they said to the woman, it's no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. Jesus is the bread of life. John 6, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes to me shall never thirst. Jesus is the light of the world, John 8. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Jesus is the good shepherd. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Jesus is the resurrection and the life. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Jesus is the way the truth, and the life. Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. John 14, 6. So you see the portrait that John has painted for Jesus. There's no one like him. There's no one like him. He's fulfilled prophecy. He's performed miracles and ultimately was glorified through his sacrificial death on the cross, his resurrection from the dead, showing his power over sin and death to sit at the right hand of God. Jesus is worthy of all of Peter's love and praise and worship. And so while the discussion with Peter of his second chance around the charcoal fire is interesting, we must close our study of John rather reflecting on John's overarching point that we even see here in these verses that Jesus is amazing, that Jesus is worthy, and he has power to redeem, that he is our God. Let me read for us one last time this verse that we've come to know so well in these 43 sermons, John 20, 31. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, And that by believing in him, you might have life in his name. Friends, Jesus has made God known. Do you know him? 
And not only do you know him, do you love him? We know what love is. Unrestrained emotion, total trust, wide open arms of welcome, eager desire to serve for the other's happiness. John Calvin said, no man will steadily persevere in the discharge of his ministry unless the love of Christ shall reign in his heart. The love of Christ is most essential. And Jesus begins there in his discussion with Peter, not examining him over his past behavior, but asking him if he loves him. Perhaps you come from a religious background, even a so-called Christian one, maybe, in which you've never been invited to consider that Jesus Christ himself, this, this one who I just have spoken of and, and relayed to you and reminded you what the Gospel of John says, you've never been invited to consider that that God, that Messiah, invites you to love him. It was because of love that he came to the world, John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. And now he's inviting, welcoming, commanding our love. You know, this love is not rule following for some pats on the back and hope of a gratuity someday. It's not romantic Valentine's Day affections we're talking about deep, covenant, steadfast, joy-producing, endurance-giving love. Do you love Jesus? If you don't know the answer to that question, it doesn't matter how young or old you are. It's a question that you can have an answer to, and I encourage you to. Don't just love the church. Don't just love thinking about religious things. Don't just love the possibility that you might not go to hell. Love Jesus. He is our Lord. There's no one like him. So as we love that singular Lord, what we also see in these verses is submitting to a double call. Now, some of you may be asking, even as I ask you that question, do you love Jesus? Some of you may be asking, well, how do I know if I love Jesus? I think I love Jesus, but now you're asking me that question. I'm not really sure if I do. How can I know if I love Jesus? Well, as Jesus tells Peter here, and John has shown throughout his gospel, love for Christ necessarily brings about a submission to this double call, this twofold call to follow him and to feed his sheep. It's a twin pairing of, of being and doing. It's a helpful summation of what it means, the shape of this commissioned life. Why am I using the word submit? You might remember in John 14, a verse that goes like this, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. You see, you simply cannot profess love for Jesus and then have no expectation that it results in anything in your life. 
That's not love, is it? No, love begets obedience. Love is not the same as obedience, but love begets obedience. If we love, we will submit to his ways for us. True love for Christ will overflow in a submission to his way for us as an expression of that love. And that's what's summarized here to Peter as this sort of double call to follow Christ and to feed his sheep. Let's look at those briefly in turn. What's it mean to follow? What's it mean to follow? You see that twice here in these verses that we've read in John 21, verse 19. After saying this, he said to him, follow me. And Jesus said to him in verse 22, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. The question of do you love me has a knock-on effect to the calling of follow me. And this isn't new for us in John's gospel. You'll remember this right from the start in chapter 1. He's calling to his disciples and he says to Philip, follow me. And then we get into the central teaching in the gospels. Jesus repeatedly brings up this idea of following him. John 8, again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. John 10, 4, when he has brought out all his own, he goes before them and the sheep follow him for they hear his voice. And then in John 10, 27, my sheep hear my voice, I know them and they follow me. So just like a lamp in darkness that we would follow to know the way, or just like sheep following their shepherd to the pasture, Jesus' disciples are to follow him, to look to him and, and to be with him, to have a posture of trust and dedication. And these verses and these thoughts from John 8 and John 10 culminate in John 12 with some of the most sobering verses in the gospel where Jesus expands on what it might mean to follow him. John, in John 12, Jesus contrasts love for the world with following him. He says, whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Following Jesus means nothing less than hating your life here. How can I say that? How can Jesus say that? Does that mean that we don't have happiness? We can't pursue relationships, responsibilities, fun? No. But it does mean if we're looking to this life for guidance, if we're looking to this life for ultimate security, for meaning, we're showing that we are not followers of Jesus. How can we know that we love Jesus? John 12 has told us we follow him. We follow him by denying our preferences for the sake of others' joy and progress in Christ. We follow him by dying to our need for fulfillment in earthly relationships, and instead we serve others out of the life we have in Christ. We follow him by dying to our vain ambitions 
And instead, we use every day we have for his glory. We follow him by dying to our reputations and being willing to suffer insult, accusation, and offense, but never denying Christ. We follow him by dying to our cynicism, our bitterness, and anger. And instead, we love our enemies. We pray for those who persecute us, and we trust in his vindication on the last day. We follow him by denying and dying this life so that we can find true life. Having gone before his disciples to show the way of love, even death on a cross, Jesus now calls Peter to follow me. Peter, remember what I said back in John 12? I've now shown you what that means, and I'm calling you to it. And in these verses, Jesus makes no mistake, no secret, what this is going to mean for Peter. It's going to mean a violent death for Peter. Dying to himself in this life for Peter to follow Christ will mean Peter dying a violent death. But even in that, Christ's call is hopeful. Because to die to ourselves and even to die in whatever way now, following Jesus means new life and everlasting life. Before he himself was executed, German theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote this. If we answer the call to discipleship, where will it lead us? What decisions or partings will it demand? To answer this question, we shall have to go to him, for only he knows the answer. Only Jesus Christ, who bids us follow him, knows the journey's end, but we know that it will be a road of boundless mercy. Discipleship means joy. Follow me, Jesus says to Peter, and to all of us, follow Jesus. Now what does it mean about that double call? Remember I said to follow and to feed his sheep? It's a twofold, a twin pairing that following will include another activity, which is feeding Christ's sheep. We see that here again in these verses. Three times when Peter responds, yes, Jesus, I love you. Jesus returns, feed my lambs, tend my sheep, feed my sheep. And just again, the slight variance in the words for love that we talked about already, the important thing here is not to get caught up in the difference between tend and feed or lambs and sheep. The point is the same. Jesus has a flock, and he's calling Peter to shepherd it. Jesus has a flock, and he's calling Peter to shepherd it, to feed it, to pasture this flock. And this shepherding metaphor for his calling would be so impactful to Peter that he's going to re-emphasize it in 1 Peter 5 in his epistle. This is how he's going to call the elders to think of their ministry as a shepherding ministry. But notice that it's Jesus' sheep. Feed my sheep. He is the shepherd, and the sheep hear his voice and come. He is the good shepherd who keeps them. He is the one who has sheep that were not of this fold, John told us earlier, 
not of national Israel, but he has sheep that are outside that he's going to be calling in and bringing in to his flock. And what we're to do, what Peter was to do, is feed them. The shepherding that Jesus is calling Peter to has a specific shape to it. It's not shepherding in the sense of what we might see on the felt boards or in cartoons rolling around in the grass and tickling the sheep behind the ears. This shepherding is to guide and protect, particularly through feeding. And what what does that mean, feeding? It was in chapter 6 that Jesus said, I am the bread of life. We already read that. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. If anyone eats his bread, he will live forever. So now here in John 21, when we hear him say, feed my sheep, we understand exactly what he means. His sheep need to hear of him. They need to be taught of him. They need to know the gospel. That is what feeding the sheep means in John. Feed them my word. Jesus is saying, I am the life-giving nutrition that my sheep need. They're going to receive it through you feeding them with my word. We feed the sheep with the bread of life, which is Christ. They're his sheep. It's his gospel. We're the messengers. Friends, that's why we conceive at Redeemer Church of shepherding as primarily a task of feeding. To be a shepherd is not only to teach, but it must essentially be a teaching role of taking what we can see plainly in God's word and making it available, applying it to the hungry sheep, both in public and in private, in sermons and in daily conversations, in classes and in the very structures of our ministries. The word must be supreme. And this doesn't apply only to elders, those in teaching roles, but to all of us who would follow Christ. We're all called to speak the truth in love. Titus 2 calls older women to teach the younger. And Matthew's great commission, all disciples, all disciples are called to teach all that Christ has commanded. So Redeemer, let's be a teaching church. Let's be a teaching church. Let's be a church where we feed one another God's word, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's put away vain discussion. And let's labor to know God through the scriptures, to root ourselves in the truth, speaking the gospel one to another. The food's on the table. The banquet is spread. Brunch is ready. Let's eat. And let's take others with us and feed them. You see, some people want to try and follow only, perhaps That might feel like where you're at. You like the idea of Jesus. You like this idea of being attached to him. But you don't want to speak into anyone else's life. You don't want to share the truth with your neighbor or exhort fellow members. Yours is a more private Christianity. Happy to sit and listen to sermon after sermon, podcast after podcast, read book after book. But you're like those that are always learning and never coming to a knowledge of the truth. Some of us actually are on the other side, maybe. 
where we just open our mouths and start feeding whatever comes out, whatever words that we think are, are worth saying, but it actually doesn't come from a place of following Christ. We just like to tell everybody what to do. We're boastful and proud. We have the appearance of godliness, but we deny its power. You see, we cannot impart what we do not possess. We cannot feed others, encouraging them to follow Christ if we have not done that ourselves. And we must teach what we know about Christ, even while we learn what we don't. We must lay down our lives and follow Christ. We must see the lives around us and feed them Christ. So lastly, lastly we come to how did it go for Peter at that second charcoal fire? Let's think of living with a triple grief. Now remember the background to these three questions here in John 21 of if Peter loves Christ is from John 18 around that first charcoal fire where three times Peter denies to others that he's a follower of Christ. And in that series of denials, as devastating as they would have been, Jesus actually had told Peter that they would happen. In John 13, on the night of Jesus' betrayal, there was this exchange between Peter and Jesus. Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus answered him, where I'm going, you can't follow but you will follow afterward. And Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay my life down for you. And Jesus answered, will you lay it down, your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. So Peter boldly says, I'm ready. Put me in, coach. I'm ready to lay down my life for you. But only hours later, while Jesus is laying down his life for Peter, Peter denies him three times. Imagine, imagine, just put yourself in the feet of Peter for a moment. Imagine the weight of shame that Peter would have experienced as he comes out of the water, thinking the Lord is there, and as he comes up to Jesus, it comes into focus where Jesus is, and he sees Jesus at that charcoal fire. And his heart would have sank. Oh. Maybe he thought after the two appearings that Jesus had already made, maybe that whole denial thing was water under the bridge. Maybe me and Jesus aren't, we just, we're just going to leave that. We're not going to bring that up. Pete, no, no, Peter. Jesus loves Peter way too much. Jesus loves Peter way too much. He is too kind to Peter to let him live in the grief that he is experiencing. The grief over his sin. I'm using that word grief because you see there in verse 17 that Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? Peter knew exactly what Jesus was doing. It wasn't just the charcoal fire. Peter knew exactly what Jesus was doing. Asking three times, do you love me? And it grieved him. And there's a lot of kinds of grief. Sometimes we're, we're sad about what other people do. 
Sometimes we're sad about the situations of the world. We're grieved by it. But if we are more grieved by global headlines or about other people's behavior than our own sin, we have missed the point of the Bible. That we are to be most concerned with the darkness within. And Peter is experiencing that just now. He's shamed, he's grieved, he's broken. Because Jesus has said a third time, he's emphasized it, bold, italics, underline. Christ is literally replaying the scene, reenacting the sin and failure of Peter, Peter's denials. But he's doing it to redeem. So that Peter can see that the love of Christ is to be the fuel of his mission. Remember, Peter said, I'm going to lay down my life for you. And now Jesus is coming alongside him and saying, Peter, no. I laid down my life for you. So that even your moments of deepest shame and grief cannot be things that tie you, not be things that bind you, not be things that condemn you, but be the very places where you experience my grace the most powerfully, to experience his love, to experience his redemption. You see how powerful Christ's love for Peter is. He brings these things up not to shame Peter, but to redeem him. The interaction goes on. The questions move from Christ to now Peter asks a question. They see John nearby. John's walking there and, and Peter, who just heard that he was about to die a very violent death at some point, Peter kind of says, well, what about this guy? What's going to happen to him? Jesus is not going to play this game of comparison. Jesus isn't going to play this game of let's determine our happiness and our worth based on what's going to happen to someone else. Verse 22, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. So in this quick conversation, Jesus totally reorients Peter for how to live this commissioned life. You have griefs. You're grieved over sin. Follow me. Feed my sheep. You have people around you. You're worried about what happens to them. Don't worry about them. You follow me. Jesus confronts both of those tendencies in his invitation to love him and to follow him and to feed his sheep. Peter and John would both go on from here to be the pillars of the first steps of the church. They would follow Christ until their dying days. Yes, John did die. And they would feed his sheep, calling others to do the same. So remember that thing? Remember that, remember that thing that we started this time thinking about? The shameful moment? That moment that grieves you? Perhaps there's a, just like this charcoal fire, perhaps there's a, an object I could put here on the stage where if you saw it, you would know 
oh, that, that's because he wants to talk about that thing. Or, or maybe it's a person, a person that your sin and the way it affected that person so grieves you that if that person was standing here, you would know, oh, I've, I've got to. Friend, what I want to tell you today on the reliable testimony of Scripture is that Jesus, in moments like that, is there not to shame you but to redeem you. So I want you to follow, as you think about that, the path that we've walked today. Start with your love for Christ. Remember what's true about him. Remember your love for him. Remember that he is the Lord and that there is no other. And then submit to your calling. Remember that you're called to follow him. In following him, you're to feed his sheep. David cries out in Psalm 51, Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. You see, our following, our salvation, it comes with a double call to feed, to teach the sheep. And then bear your grief. Having started with the love of Christ, having submitted to your calling, you will then find that your griefs, even your worst sins, are actually the very places where you will find Christ's grace the most powerful and his calling to you the most clear. So friend, as you think about that today, I hope you would walk out of here not with more secrets to hide, but with more stories to tell of Christ's redeeming grace. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, how sobering it is to try and say anything of worth about the most worthy one. Oh, Lord, I pray that your word would impact hearts today, the, the things that we've read of Jesus Christ. Lord, he is worthy of all praise and honor, glory and power, majesty, dominion, forever and ever and ever. Lord, we bow down and we say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Worthy is the lamb who was slain. Oh, Lord, thank you for your love for us. Thank you for the redemption that is in Christ. Lord, would you give us grace to live out these days, not because we love this life, but because we have found the love that is ours in Christ. Open our mouths to be eager to teach sinners your ways, because we sinners have come to know them. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.